My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dark routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. That is why I've chosen my own profession, or rather, created it, for I am the only one in the world. You're listening to However Improbable, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. I'm Sarah Cole. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, we're bringing you a case file episode on arguably the most iconic Sherlock Holmes television series made in the last 50 years. From 1984 to 1994, British actor Jeremy Brett starred in 36 one-hour episodes and five feature-length specials in the Granada Television Studio series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Yes, this is our Granada Holmes episode. We promised we would get there, and here we are. (laughs) Um, This is actually the first of two. The Granada series is a behemoth in the number of episodes, in its impact, and in the lives of the actors who played Holmes and Watson. So we're going to talk about it in two parts. Today, we'll walk you through the first two seasons of the show and dive into how it was developed, who was cast, and how these early episodes stack up a full 37 years later. In all of our case file episodes, we'll take a big look at the background and then attempt to answer two questions. One, is it a good adaptation? And two, is it just a good TV series? Let's start first with the face of the series and the reason why so many of us love Granada Holmes, Jeremy Brett. (laughs) The man, the myth, the legend. Yes. As they say. So I think the first fact about Jeremy Brett is that Jeremy Brett is not his actual name. Right. It's a stage name. His full name was Peter Jeremy William Huggins, which is not as romantic, (laughs) but what can you do? So Jeremy Brett, he was born in November 1933 and died in September 1995. He was trained by Elsie Fogarty at the Central School of Speech and Drama, and then he worked at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Um, So he studied acting and theater. Mm-hmm. So he was professionally trained in acting, mm-hmm. which is yeah. significant. Sort of Shakespeare-trained actors in that time totally have a certain way of speaking and presenting themselves, which, you you know, he kind of exemplifies mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Is the, the reason why he went by a stage name is because his father demanded he change his name for the sake of family honor, <laughs> so people wouldn't be like, that's your kid. So, I mean, Jeremy is, is one of his middle names, and then he took the last name Brett from the label of his first suit, (laughs) Brett and Company. I love everything about this anecdote from the tyrannical father who apparently lives in Shakespearean England where it is blasphemous (laughs) to be an actor. (laughs) To be an actor. (laughs) All the way through the just, ah, yeah, the tag on my suit. Why not? Just the theatricality of being Mm -hmm. like, well, this is something I've donned to like appear this way. So now that's my name. It's who I am now. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. His professional acting debut was in rep at the Library Theatre in Manchester in 1954. And his London stage debut was with the Old Vic Company in 1956. Although he was on stage a lot, he also did a lot of film. And there's quite a few that are actually pretty significant. His first appearance in a major film was with War and Peace from 1956, which also starred Audrey Hepburn. His highest profile role before he played Sherlock Holmes was Freddy in My Fair Lady. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, his singing is dubbed, which I have heard that he was quite upset about, which to be fair, he is exceptionally beautiful in this film. And the film is is... so dreamy. I mean, it's a wonderful movie, but he is so dreamy. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. I have a lot of gripes with My Fair Lady as a conceit, (laughs) as opposed to, you know... G.B. Shaw's Pygmalion, which is Uh a whole podcast episode in of itself. But Jeremy Brett is phenomenal in it. It's a beautiful film. It's it's just aesthetically gorgeous. And then around this time, Brett was also considered to replace Sean Connery as James Bond, but turned the role down, I guess. 
um, feeling that playing 007 would harm his career. And then George Lazenby was I cast. I have I am, don't know anything about James Bond. <laughs> yeah, it's not really an area of expertise, but I am obsessed with that fact. Yeah. And now I'm like, you know, like, there's that meme that's like, society, blah, 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 society of Jeremy Brennan cast as Bond. <laughs> there's flying cars and clean energy yeah. and no COVID. <laughs> what about his personal life? What do we know about his early goings on? So he was married twice to a woman named Anna Massey in 1958, and then Joan Wilson in 1976. Mm -hmm. He was also publicly in relationships with two men that, you know, were really public. Um, Mm -hmm. An actor named Gary Bond, starting around 1969, and then Paul Shenar in the late 70s. I get loath to put words in the mouth of people who have never publicly expressed sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. but he sort of clearly publicly was involved with people of multiple genders. Right. So we love that for him. Yeah. And for us. Icon. We love that for him and for us, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And here's another fun little tidbit about him. Before the Granada Home series, he actually played Dr. Watson on stage opposite Charlton Heston, of all people, (laughs) in a production of The Crucifer of Blood in the 80s in L.A., which means he's one of a small number of actors who have professionally played both Holmes and Watson. Mm -hmm. And of course, now he is widely considered to be the definitive Holmes of his era, just as Basil Rathbone was at the beginning of the 40s and William Gillette was during the first third of the 20th century. Yeah, I think you can conclusively make that statement and no one's going to argue with you about it. So (laughs) where are we going to place this quote? Um, I think it's it's it can go here. Let's just okay. like get this off the top. Let's just get this out of the way. He's a good looking guy, and sure knew it. is. You are not to immune to the Jeremy Brett. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. So we have this great quote <laughs> that I absolutely adore. I've heard this multiple times, and I always think it's just such a kicker. So Michael Cox, who was the producer is quoted by David Stewart Davies in Bending the Willow, which is a book all about Jeremy Brett, saying that, quote, Jeremy was always going to be handsome. There was no way that one could avoid that. I remember Sandra, my wife, saying to me when the project was being set up, heavens above, why do you want to do yet another version of those two dreary old folk in Baker Street? And I said, suppose Sherlock Holmes was played by Jeremy Brett. And she said, ah, well, that's different. So good. <laughs> Jeremy Brett was always going to be handsome. He was always going to be handsome. No and avoiding it. You were right. You were right. <laughs> there are like multiple th- critics, male critics, who were just talking about how good looking he was in, this, in these roles. And I think it's really funny. They're right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how the series itself was developed. It was initially produced by Michael Cox, developed for TV by a screenwriter named John Hawksworth, who wrote and adapted many of the stories. And a little detail that I love is they built this full-scale replica of Baker Street. They constructed it at Granada Studios in Manchester, and then it was a huge tourist attraction for a long time. Yeah, I'm really bummed that it closed, because I would absolutely love to go see that. I've been to the Baker Street Museum, <laughs> yeah. um, and I actually, when I studied abroad in London, I lived adjacent to, like, I lived a block away from the Baker Street Museum. I lived across oh, really? from the Baker Street, um, the tube station, mm-hmm. and so, you know, out my little window, I could see the Sherlock Holmes statue, and the Baker Street Museum is very charming, but... It's one thing to go see that and another thing to sort of feel you are immersed in it when you mm-hmm. see it on television. I just, I would love to to see that set because I, I, I adore that set. I, I just, that's one of it's my beautiful. favorite things about the series is the, the care with which they construct everything and it is just gorgeous. It's so quirky and homey at the same time. This is a, a an anecdote Jeremy Brett told in some news interview. Where, you know, he would he was kind of irritated, I think, that people would come and just, like, tour through the set mm-hmm. while he wasn't working. And so he would just kind of, like, be laying back there, <laughs> taking his break while he wasn't acting. And people would think that he was just part of the scenery. Oh, and then he would so sit funny. up and go, ah, and scare <laughs> tourists. That sounds so much like him. 
I think its intention when they started developing it was to present what they they thought it was going to be most faithful screen adaption of many of the home stories. A lot of the episodes, they stick pretty close to this. Sometimes, particularly mm-hmm. as the series kind of progresses, they take some liberties with plot lines with, and with characters. Some of it had to do with Jeremy Brett's health later in his life. And some of it, some of it, I don't know. I don't know why they did the things that they did but by and large you know i think there's a lot of care like you said to Mm -hmm. atmosphere and to detail and a lot of the early stories in particular are really really to the text of the book Mm -hmm. which makes them really special and kind of unique in that way it's like if you want to read a sherlock holmes story but you don't feel like reading at the moment you just pop in a granada holmes episode and it's almost exactly the same thing Mm -hmm. granada television approached Brett to play Holmes in 1982 with the pitch that this would be the most authentic adaptation of the the cases. However, Jeremy Brett really thought he was wildly miscast, which is really, yes. it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, I think, for those of us who think of him as the Holmes. This is from some television interview, and I, <laughs> it's just, it, it tickles me. So he says, I made terrible mistakes. I'm so miscast. I'm a romantic, mm-hmm. heroic actor. So I was terribly aware that I had to hide an awful lot of me, and in doing so, I think I look quite often brusque, or maybe sometimes even slightly rude. In fact, Dame Jean Conan Doyle, Doyle's daughter, who was a great personal friend of mine, did once say to me, I don't think my father meant you-know-who to be quite so rude. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, Dame Jean, I'm just trying to hide me. (laughs) That's so strange, because Jeremy Brett's Holmes is less rude than other portrayals of Sherlock Holmes. And I would also argue that to some degree, Holmes is a romantic, heroic character. Character. Not not lowercase romantic necessarily, but maybe uppercase romantic, (laughs) but just dialed down a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know? Or he tries to hide it a little, but Mm -hmm. it's definitely there. Clearly, he found his stride and he played the character for many, many years. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't that big of an issue, but it's interesting that he kind of thought that way and i think that's also uh, he was maybe slightly self-deprecating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about the whole thing right so. so once he actually agreed to play holmes he really really threw himself into the detail and spent a lot of time arguing about discrepancies between the scripts yeah. and the stories one of my favorite anecdotes about jeremy brett is that he famously turned over a table and dumped a fish dinner into the script editor's lap when yeah. they got into a fight about how faithful they were going to be to the the canon stories which is yeah. hilarious um and he said i mean like in this argument he says you've asked me to do sir arthur conan doyle's sherlock holmes these aren't sherlock holmes stories doyle's stories and he flips over the table uh, yeah he there like goes overturns the fish. his lunch i believe yeah. it was lemon soul <laughs> quite specific and so one of his prized possessions so he first of all was really known for carrying around a copy of the adventures of Sherlock Holmes on set, like a big Doyle omnibus, mm-hmm. um, which I adore. And there are photos of him like with his, you know, his books under his arm. One of his other prized possessions was what he called his Baker Street file, which is a 77 page document on all of his notes on Holmes's mannerisms and his eating and drinking habits. What a man, what a man. And his childhood <laughs> and his background and how he dresses. So he just like took copious notes and... Mm-hmm. Both, I think, like, comparing details from the stories. So, like, Holmes smokes this pipe when he's in this mood or when he's thinking. Um, but also some of his own extrapolating childhood details and, and filling those gaps in for himself that we don't know in the stories. And he explained this by saying, quote, unquote, some actors are becomers. They try to become their characters. When it works, the actor is like a sponge, squeezing his, himself dry to remove his own personality, then absorbing the characters like a liquid. Holmes is known for its accuracy, and that includes all the other characters in the series that we are familiar with, including Mrs. Hudson, who is played by Rosalie Williams, Mycroft Holmes, Holmes's brother, who was played by Charles Gray, and Moriarty, who was played by Eric Porter. Opposite Jeremy Brett, the first two seasons cast a British actor named David Burke. There are actually two actors who play Watson in this series and we'll mm-hmm. talk about edward hardwick later on mm-hmm. i promise i love him just as much um david burke started the role his background he was born in 1934 he's still alive 
He played Dr. Watson for the first two seasons, like I said, and then left when he was hired by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Which, like, it's hard to turn that down. And he later recommended Edward Hardwick as his successor. I really like this. I didn't know that. That makes me very yeah, happy. I didn't either. Um, and then his he has a son named Tom Burke, who is also an actor. And he's in the BBC Three Musketeers TV show. Oh, really? Which I liked. And here is just a little David Burke quote about Jeremy Brett. Alas, I was never able to match his unflinching chutzpah or his infectious convivality. He had the ability to be everyone's friend, but it did not come carelessly. He worked at it. He knew not just each individual of the main film crews he worked with, but was genuinely interested in their families and their hobbies. He took snaps of them and posted them up on a special board. He valued their many varied skills and told them so. People respond to that kind of warmth and respond in kind. That's so sweet. Yeah, I love that so much. I think that just Mm -hmm. gives you like a really nice picture of who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. So this is another David Burke on Jeremy Brett quote. Mm -hmm. Um, So... (laughs) He says, we were on location somewhere and he serenaded me at a restaurant table in the middle of a very crowded restaurant in the evening. And when he serenaded me, he really did serenade me. He wasn't taking the mickey. It was absolutely serious. It's only Jeremy could be serious in a situation like that. I was sitting there and suddenly his voice was floating out all over this restaurant and he improvised a song all about me and my beautiful wife and my beautiful son. I was absolutely crimson with embarrassment, but it didn't make me love him any less. (laughs) I just adore him. (laughs) I know. Oh, here's one more fun fact about these two. So on top of being in in the TV show together for two seasons, they were in a play on the West End called The Secret of Sherlock Holmes from 1988 to 1989. It was a two-hander written specifically for them by the series screenwriter. They took the TV show so cool to the stage for a year. What wouldn't you give to go see that? In terms of places and times you could teleport to mm-hmm. with your time travel machine, mm-hmm. take me to like I know. late night for real. 1988. So <laughs> we are doing our in order that mm-hmm. it happened to the characters chronology, and then there's the publication order chronology, and then Granada chronology. The stories are in a completely different order. So if this is the first way that you experience the show, you could be like, why on earth? Are things happening the way that you say that they're mm-hmm. happening? Scandal in Bohemia is the first short story that Conan Doyle wrote, and it's the first episode of yeah. the series, but then after that, it's sort of loosey-goosey. Yeah. My understanding is, like, the first season in particular, they, they didn't know how long this was going to get to run for, mm-hmm. and they wanted it to be successful and for lots of people to watch it, so they adapted the most famous and maybe the most adaptable stories first. That makes sense. Like, they start with Scandal, but then they do the Speckled Band, they do the Redheaded League, they Mm -hmm. do the Dancing Men. Right. Solitary Cyclist is pretty early on. They do the Blue Carbuncle, like, really, really early, Mm -hmm. which is a wonderful, like, I love that one. so good. Man, Um, I could really just, every episode, I'm like, oh, good episode. Good episode. When you get into the later series, they're into some of the stories that are a little weirder or, eh, what is this plot? But it's like, well, that's what happens. Mm Mm-hmm. It's easy to be a stickler when the, the stories are really good. And then they, they did not do a study in Scarlet. When we open on the series, it is very amorphous in terms of how long they have been living together, how they know each other. We as readers know how they met, but there's yeah. really no sense of creating this relationship. We are just thrown right into it in the middle of it, which I personally mm-hmm. love and think it really works for what they are doing. Yeah, Whereas, like, I, I agree. You know, other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes show that initial meeting and they show the development of that relationship. And I do think that works in certain cases. Elementary, for example, I think yeah. develops that incredibly beautifully. But I really do like just being thrown right into the middle of a scandal in Bohemia. I mean, they're essentially like, you guys know who these people are and you know what happens. So let's just right. get down to it. They're like... You know it. You know these characters. Let's just move on. The the reason, my understanding anyway, they didn't do a uh, study in Scarlet is because both actors were too old. Yeah, that makes sense. As we have lamented before, one can't really do a thorough adaptation of Sherlock Holmes that spans 30 years. So. I know. Let's just like get started on that now. Yeah, let's time is time is ticking, folks. <laughs> 
We need our sprite twenty-seven-year-old Holmes, and we're gonna yeah have a. They're really gotta call you in thirty years on him, <laughs> right? For thirty years. <laughs> there is this one passage that I would like to read about a scandal in Bohemia. Quote: The opening sequence shows Watson returning to Baker Street and his friend Sherlock Holmes following a trip into the country. Watson is quote filled with apprehension as to his companion's mood. Cunningly, we are immediately alerted to the uncertain nature of the relationship that exists between the two men. It has all the uncharted domestic connotations of a marriage. Unquote. Lovely. So I, I think that's a lovely passage. I think it also really gets to the idea of where we as the audience are placed or at the beginning mm-hmm. of Scandal, where we don't need all the backstory. We can get it all through the, your, their interactions with one another. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. They don't really put any effort into, like, having the characters mm-hmm. explain. Right. They're the never... Context, like you said, they're literally just are like, all right, let's just do this. Mm-hmm. They're never like, oh, yes, when you and I met at St. Bart's all those years yeah. ago. <laughs> let's move on to our big questions that we have for mm-hmm. all of our case file episodes about adaptations. One, is this a good adaptation, Sarah? Oh, my God, Yes. Obviously. <laughs> it is like the adaptation. It I mean, is arguably the adaptation. Personal opinion, but it is the adaptation. Mm-hmm. The actors in the sets, in how the stories are taken from book to screen, into the care that mm-hmm. everyone involved clearly put into it, mm-hmm. into the spirit of the thing, into the way Jeremy Brett looks in those suits. I mean. Yeah. The cream colored suit with his little hat. That's, what, that's oh. in the Naval Treaty. Oh. And he never wears that suit again, and it's so beautiful. And he, like, sits outside in a field and leans against a tree in this beautiful, like, white linen suit. They really do like, make use, like, for all the, for all that they lament about how too beautiful Jeremy Brett is, they really make use of it. I don't think you're going to disagree, but what's your answer to that question? Obviously, this is the quintessential Sherlock Holmes adaptation. I don't even know what to say about it, except for that it's perfect. I mean, it, it, it's stunning, right? I mean, yeah, all the really actors is. are wonderful. I mean, I think Jeremy Brett is Sherlock Holmes. End of sentence. David Burke and Edward Hardwick, to me, combined to create yeah. the John Watson. So it is almost like there are different facets of his personality that are emphasized in the different seasons, mm-hmm. which I don't have an issue with. But I think if you could somehow, if scientists could combine David Burke... <laughs> and into Edward Hardwick into one Superman, then it would be John Watson. Do you want to talk about David Burke as Watson? Yeah, sure. God, what's there to say? He He's also quite handsome. He is so, like, boyishly handsome. Mm-hmm. He's, like, energetic, and he's just full of yes. admiration and vivaciousness. Mm-hmm. Very funny, but not in a bumbling sense. No. I really like that about this adaptation where we've talked about this especially in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, presentation of Watson where he's often this bumbling sidekick that we aren't always too keen on. But I think David Burke does a really good job of being both very funny and obviously not as smart as Holmes because no one is, but not taking it to the lengths of just this silly, like, why would you even have this man coming along with you type character. Watson is a little bit of a himbo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that he's just, he's, like, doing his best. Loves he's the He's not ladies. always going to get it right, but he looks lovely doing it. And you're like, you know what? He's very Could charming. You, he's also, you do get the sense that he is medically accomplished as well. I always like to see that because it allows Watson to have a skill that Holmes does not have. And he's very good with people. So that comes through. Friendly, affable. He kind of just like gets along with everyone, and that's a skill in their partnership that really comes across mm-hmm. in his character. And I absolutely love the relationship between Jeremy Brett's Holmes and David Burke's Watson. <laughs> I, I think that you don't see this enough in many adaptations where they're kind of silly together. You know, there's a lot of they're giggling. Goofy. I think about the scene at the beginning of the Redheaded League, which is a story we haven't talked about. Oh, yes. Um, there's this like ludicrous man in their living room telling them this ridiculous story and they cannot keep it together and they both start giggling. Mm-hmm. They're um, like making eye contact. But like, David Burke's giggling. Laugh, Is he laugh. like giggles so hard he falls out of his chair? 
It's so good. I was thinking of the Musgrave ritual at the beginning of that episode where they're both in the um, barbershop. Watson is getting his hair cut and, <laughs> and they, you know, Watson tries to deduce why Holmes is there. He gets it wrong. But then Holmes is like, well, you're not entirely wrong. And they sort of giggle about it. And it's very yeah. cute. <laughs> I recently, a couple days ago, I watched The Copper Beaches. Mm-hmm episode again a great one it's really so creepy so creepy um, but it starts out where they have a little tiff oh about yes it's so good writing yes um which is an interesting thread that kind of runs through the stories and so they have mm-hmm. they have a little argument where holmes is like you sensationalize me you're not accurately depicting the scientific rigor of my work and watson's like but i thought you liked my stories and he gets he's like his feelings are hurt a little bit and then he kind of comes holmes is upset about something else and watson is able to kind of clue into it mm-hmm. by the end of the story Holmes is like, well, are you going to write this one down? And they clearly kind of resolve their little tiff. They sometimes kind of squabble. I really like that. It's clearly like they're friends and they've had these conversations like a billion times. Mm-hmm. Watson be like, oh, you're kind of like pissing me off. And then he it's kind of very gets over like, it. would you please put the lid on the toothpaste? <laughs> like, We're talking about my writing again. We're doing this again. Okay. So I like that dimension of of their friendship and their relationship too. Is like it's very domestic. Yeah. There's also a really good part in that episode when they're having their little fight when Watson is like, you're always in a bad mood when you smoke that pipe. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so charming. Another example of that I'm, th- that I'm thinking of is in The Solitary Cyclist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Where Holmes sends Watson to the country to, like, do some recon. And Watson, th- he thinks he does this great job. And then he doesn't actually gain any information. And he comes back and Holmes is like, you should have done this and this and this and this. <laughs> and Watson goes like, did I really do so terribly badly? And Holmes is like, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It, they're wonderful. So I, I, I think also in terms of asking whether or not this is a good series more broadly rather than on an episode by episode basis is slightly a different question. Right? Yeah. I mean, something that I was thinking about is the way that they really tidily thread Moriarty into the last episodes. So mm-hmm. Moriarty shows up in some manner in the Redheaded League, which he doesn't in the actual story. So they, yeah. they, they tie that in so that when it gets to the final problem, it's not out of nowhere. It's a little bit more of a buildup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not That's overly really so. Which I also think is a balance because I don't personally like it when every villain is tied back is to Moriarty, Moriarty. Yeah. right? Yeah, which I it's, but it's just enough that like it helps that final story have more weight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also make a little bit more sense. Private Life of Sherlock Holmes is a, an example of an adaptation that is trying to say something new that the stories don't mm-hmm. say. And I don't think this series necessarily is doing that, but that's not really what it's intending right. to. It's just like polishing and finessing some of the good stuff that are in the stories, but often kind of haphazard because Doyle was kind of haphazard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the project of this series is not so much reinventing Sherlock Holmes, but returning to the heart of Sherlock Holmes because there is a little bit of a failure to make Holmes the weird guy that he is in a lot of the early adaptations and to really demonstrate that beautiful relationship between him him and Watson, um, which many of the creators of the story have commented on, Jeremy Brett included. The way that Jeremy Brett conceived of Holmes's relationship with Watson is really the tether to which he found himself in this in the series so Mm -hmm. it's not so much about the mysteries as it is about that relationship and about showing the facets of Holmes's personality through the lens of of that relationship and through the lens of the mysteries that they solve together and Jeremy Brett himself said that he began to find cracks within Sherlock Holmes and that he is in fact like a fully-fledged human and not just the superhero figure that he had been made out to be. And he said, if I can just quote this passage from Jeremy Brett, he said, quote, But the most thing of all I discovered was the relationship with Watson. He wasn't the doddering plotter following behind as, as is so often shown. 
He had the compassion to stay with Holmes, picking him up. It is one of the great friendships of literature. If you look at it from Watson's side, Holmes emerges as about the loneliest man in literature. Really, Watson is much more my kind of part than Holmes. Holmes is a big stretch. The relationship between them is terribly British. Holmes has had a great deal of trouble saying such simple things as help, thank you, and I'd be lost without you. Watson sees beyond that. He's fascinated by Holmes and his intuitive leaps, and he realizes that if he stays away from Holmes for too long, the man will overdose. Yes, there's no doubt in my mind that it is Holmes who needs Watson and not the other way around. I don't see any of that in the earlier films, nor did I see anything of the vulnerability of Holmes. So that's why I set out from the beginning to show the insecurity and to explore the amazing friendship between those two men. That's just exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. We're not even that far into the stories, and I feel like we've said it again and again, is that the thing that makes us care about them all of these years later is that relationship Mm -hmm. and that friendship and what those two people mean to each other. And to understand that that's the crux. And the rest is, I mean, it's entertaining and it's fun to watch. And um, The rest is gravy. Anchors, you know, it like revolves around the stories, Mm -hmm. but... They wouldn't be anything without Holmes and Watson and their dynamic. Absolutely. And I think A Scandal in Bohemia for being the first episode, if I can just talk about Scandal once more and exalt it because it is so good. It's a really good one. Is how quickly it establishes everything that you need to know about the characters, their personalities, Mm. their relationships to one another, the daily routine that they undergo. Um, And there are so many iconic lines fitted right into that early that early episode you get the i'm lost without my boswell from holmes saying to watson you get this moment where i think it's holmes who says that it's either both of us or none of us um and you get his you know very iconic lines like the one we've put up at the beginning of this episode about the give me problems give me work and i could go on about this forever but you get this really great line, too, which demonstrates Watson's personality, where Holmes says, you don't mind breaking the law? And Watson's like, not in the least, <laughs> which is just splendid. Um, and then yeah. you even get a Tchaikovsky reference, and you get the theatrics and the disguise, and you get the mm-hmm. interesting gender stuff between Irene Adler and Holmes. It's fascinating. You know, if that's the first episode that you watch of this series, it's so good and it's so incredibly faithful to a scandal in bohemia Mm -hmm. which yes which we're going to talk about but that's really rare exactly the only thing i don't like about it is that they always they insist on saying irene is irena irena and i was like what i don't (laughs) what is going on is there anything you don't like about the series hmm Sometimes there's some really bad wigs. That's true. Holmes and Watson's costuming and the design of Baker Street and, like, just the way that the street looks, a lot of that stuff I think is really, really faithful and and feels very authentic. Sometimes the supporting characters who are not kind of the recurring cast, um, their acting and their wigs, Mm -hmm. particularly the wigs, um, date them as to (laughs) when specifically it was made. And sometimes the the... like, supporting characters, their acting is really great. But every now and then you get someone where you're like, what? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And there's some weird hair. Yeah. I, I always feel that in period dramas, you can always tell the decade it's being filmed <laughs> in based solely on the people's hair. Yeah. The actor's hair. Um, which is somehow you can never quite shake out of that. Yeah. You can hard. put people in different clothes, but the hair is always a big giveaway <laughs> to what decade it's in. I don't see that in how Holmes and Watson are costumed. No, I, I don't um, think so. But I mean, the difference between Jeremy Brett dresses Sherlock Holmes and Jeremy Brett in real life is so dramatically yeah. different. I mean, you see photos, like, you're like, oh, you lived in the 90s? Right. It's like, uh, it's like a culture shock. <laughs> yeah. Just like, because you with picture lash. him with his slick back hair and his black suit. Mm-hmm. Like living in the Victorian era, but no, he died in 1995. The damaged penguin, as he <laughs> used to call Holmes. Yeah, he he had a lot of funny. You know, he referred to Holmes as you know who. <laughs> to get a little serious again about Sherlock Holmes and 
this portrayal of him, Jeremy Brett's frankly funny nickname of the damaged penguin is actually quite apt in some ways. I mean, I think his quote about showing the vulnerability of Holmes in the series is really rare up to this point when they were filming Sherlock Holmes. And there are moments as in, I think it's in the Naval Treaty when Holmes is sitting in his armchair and he's smoking and Watson's about to go to bed and Watson asks him if he's all right, you know, and Jeremy Brett just such a good actor does this whole elaborate but very subtle expression of his face when like he he smiles and he's smoking his pipe and he's like yes of course I'm all right I mean he doesn't say any of this but then you can also tell that no obviously he is not all right mm-hmm. and you get this again later the Norwood builder oh yeah yeah, yeah. um it's mm-hmm. that one yes and I I think it's that one when Holmes is really distraught about what he thinks he's not going to be able to help his client and the camera pans very wonderfully over Baker Street and over the rooms of Baker Street in which you see all these papers laid out everywhere you see Holmes's pipe you see um a half-eaten apple you see the VR and bullets on the wall uh-huh. and all of it all of it is to demonstrate that Holmes is not doing well mentally Right, and then you get this really lovely scene where Watson cajoles or Watson cajoles Holmes into eating breakfast with him, and Watson is just like, "Okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go out today. We're gonna go together. We're gonna do what we can, and I'll be there to help you." And Holmes is, you know, he he is clearly like not having a good time, and he says. I think I'm going to need your moral support today. Yeah. And it's it's just a very sweet, intimate moment that I think you don't see in a lot of the adaptations mm-hmm. where there's this genuine care being taken for Holmes. And I, uh, this just occurred to me that I, I think there's a little bit of that even in the very first, like the very first scene in A Scandal in Bohemia mm-hmm. where Watson comes home and Holmes is, you know, feeling sort of morose and they like pan to you know, his cocaine bottle in a drawer. This TV show is made in the 80s. I think there's a little bit mm-hmm. of a focus on Holmes's drug use that maybe is a little ahistorical. But they kind of, like, put that as, you know, like, as it is in the story, is a sign that his mental well-being is rather unstable and that, that Watson's worrying about him. Right. So there's a lot of care into often what is very sort of not said but acted and felt. Jeremy Brett, I think, took that really seriously. And I know there are anecdotes about the, that he kind of carried the weight of playing this character and, and how important that was around and took that out on himself. Like, he he drank quite heavily in some of these early seasons. And he had, I mean, he was bipolar. He had some mental health problems of his own um, throughout his life. So I think it's an interesting sort of symbiotic connection there you know, with his own sort of mental well-being and his own health and then Holmes's mental well-being and Holmes's health. Not like you have to have experienced those things to act them or play them well, but I do think it adds some sort of levels and layers to that portrayal that you don't see in Mm -hmm. other people. And at least, you know, being cognizant or being able to recognize it for what it is in the text probably says something at the very least, right? To be able to read Holmes's mental health and recognize it mm-hmm. for what it may be and to maybe, you know, find some particular empathy for it that mm-hmm. others haven't. Yeah. Empathy is a good word. I think that Brett in interviews, I think, would sometimes kind of poke fun at mm-hmm. Holmes being unlikable, but I, I don't think that his Holmes is unlikable. No, not and at all. And I think that's because he had such empathy for making the character feel like a real person. And then also mm-hmm. he's contrasted with both Watsons. In this case, David Burke, who, you know, is just so energetic and vivacious and like yeah. enamored with that friendship and everything mm-hmm. that's going on in it. So we mentioned that Jeremy Brett, maybe at least early on, conceived of Holmes as being a little bit too rude in the way that he was portraying him. And this is something that is often taken up in this character is that he's very brusque. And not very socially adept all the time, mm. and that he can be a little bit rude. However, I think Jeremy Brett does a really good job of 
pairing that with being incredibly charming when he yeah. wants to be. Yeah. And that he is not, he's never cruel, which I think is important. He's never cruel. And I think his interactions with women are always really fascinating. I, I find that Jeremy Bretz's Holmes is, if not particularly interested in women, as Holmes is not, right? Like, Holmes is not interested in women. He is still very polite to them. He's still very empathetic towards them. He still cares about the plight that they are going through. Mm-hmm. He hits, like, such a wide range of emotions in this character and his portrayal where Holmes is he's funny he's also kind of dark and he's Mm -hmm. sometimes very snotty or kind of bratty Mm -hmm. um sometimes Mm -hmm. he's quite playful and sometimes he's very serious like they really bring sort of like the full range of of emotions to to this character who I think can Mm -hmm. become a little bit of a caricature fast talking mean genius who doesn't care about your feelings and I don't think that his portrayal is ever in danger of that because there are all of those layers and those little moments that are so human. You know, like these like little playful moments with him and Mrs. Hudson. Um, oh, I love their relationship. Like the, the one example in the Naval Treaty where Holmes and Mrs. Hudson like play a trick on, mm-hmm. what's his name, Percy Phelps? You know, in addition to Mrs. Hudson, his relationship with Lestrade is also yeah. well portrayed mm-hmm. and well thought through. I mean, you get both the rivalry and the respect that they have for one another in the series. I also want to talk a little bit about his physicality. Yes. Holmes. He's so energetic. Mm-hmm. When, Especially so, in these early seasons. Yeah, in these early seasons. And that passage that we read in the episode before this, which is about the second stain, where he just has this like bursts of energy and is mm-hmm. tossing furniture around and zooming all around the room. I think you really see that in some of these acting choices. I mean, he like leaps over a couch mm-hmm. at one point and he's always wiggling around on the floor and like crawling up walls and yeah. digging around and things like the the process of detection in the Granada series is very much like a physical activity mm-hmm. and it's yes. really fun to watch. It's especially fun when Holmes is doing it amongst all these other people, amongst the police or mm-hmm. Watson and you really get that contrast of the police sort of just standing stuffily around right. and Holmes, like, has his nose in the carpet on the floor. Excuse and... me. I must satisfy myself after yeah. this floor. <laughs> Crawling under beds. and There's definitely mm-hmm. one where he, like, climbs up the side of a fireplace. Abby Grange, I think. Uh-huh. Is. And there's, yeah, of course, that really famous moment. I Again, I can't think of the episode this comes after, and I'll probably have to look this up. But um, they, like, solve a mystery, and he's acting all cool and collected. Mm-hmm. And he and Watson are walking away, and as soon as they're like out of earshot, he like leaps down some steps. He's and, like, like "What?" Hey! <laughs> he jumps up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which Brett. is like, it's like there's the Jeremy Brett in the yeah in the in the homes, but it's so mm-hmm. good. Another one of my favorite things about both the way that Holmes is portrayed in this adaptation and Jeremy Brett himself portraying Holmes is the theater of it all. Uh-huh. We keep returning to theater because I really do think it is so essential to Holmes's character because I one of my favorite absolute favorite things in any adaptation is when Holmes gets to go in disguise. Yeah. I love it and you can really tell that Jeremy Brett is trained as a stage actor in this series mm-hmm. because you get his different accents you get the way that he just moves his body completely differently when he is in disguise and i i think it's so fun to see him sitting in front of his vanity and peeling away his eyebrows and his <laughs> beard and his wig and wiping yeah, the there's makeup a really good example off his of face in scandal again it's got mm-hmm. everything um it really he's got like big fake eyebrows on but then he has like mm-hmm. things in his mouth to make his right. mouth shaped differently like it's mm-hmm. so good and I, I love it every time we get to see it but he said this himself where you have to have a twinkle in your eye that the audience knows that you're thinking mm-hmm. three steps ahead of where they are but you see that on his face mm-hmm. in every scene mm-hmm. you can tell you see him this thinking. man is acting a character right. who is thinking five steps ahead of everyone else around him and how do you like depict that in your physicality, it's, but he does. It's every so minute good. expression that Jeremy Brett makes is purposeful and is just yeah. filled it's incredible. with intention and thought and precision. It's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is why you can watch it all through and then watch it a million more times. I can't even tell you the number of times it's I've so easy to return Granada to because you always get something more out of it. Yeah. 
difference do you think it makes, if any, to have a, we'll say, bisexual man play Sherlock Holmes? It's, I think it's an interesting question. In the same way that I think there are added contexts to having someone who, you know, is sort of open about his struggles with mental health playing this Mm -hmm. character, who, you know, I think if you were writing Sherlock Holmes in a modern context with modern terminology, you would use the word bipolar or certainly depressed Mm -hmm. to talk about him. In, In both of those things, you know, I think there are just layers to what's brought to the screen that are different and layers to that Jeremy Brett, as someone who wasn't straight, had like an added complexity of life that many, many other actors didn't have. And that's there somewhere in that context. And also, you know, it's it's just meaningful for representation purposes. You know, it, you know, reading back through, you like see his portrayal and he's a little theatrical and a little campy. And then you read about his life and you're like, okay, that was because was who you were. Right. Yeah. And I'll just add to that, like, beyond the extension of, you know, you mentioned representation, I think, for us as viewers, people who love Sherlock Holmes, and for a podcast that is hosted exclusively by <laughs> bisexuals, <laughs> um, that it is meaningful to see this, you know, actor portray yeah. Holmes and to to see him so well beloved yeah. by audiences, yeah, I think is really meaningful. Point. That it's not just how wonderful he is as Holmes on screen, but that people adore him. Yeah, and embrace his life and and the struggles in his life and and Mm -hmm. what he stood for and who he was as a whole person. Yeah, because the character of Sherlock Holmes is such like a cultural icon, opening the door to say anybody can play him, even if they have a background that maybe you don't think has anything to do with the character. I think there's something Mm -hmm. there, too. And this, like, icon of screen dated a guy named Gary. Yeah. (laughs) They also, this has nothing to do with anything, but he had a little dog. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Mr. Binks. So cute. Oh, maybe we can post a photo of them together because it's very charming. It's a lovely photo. And they're, like, in their swimsuits. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're just Mm -hmm. so happy. It's really cute. really quite an array of passages about how beautiful Jeremy Brett is and particularly about how men are so into Jeremy Brett who Mm -hmm. can blame them but there's this one that I think is just phenomenal where the author writes quote secondly Brett exuded a fierce sexual ambivalence, ideally suited to the character of Holmes, who moved in that paradoxical Victorian age when lust and primness jostled side by side in the public consciousness. Men were fascinated by Brett's Holmes, a fascination which stirred uncertain emotions in the modern man's breast. (laughs) Jeremy's like, good. My job here is done. If it cheers the gaze up, I'm thrilled. (laughs) <laughs> this is from the times an article in 2009 okay in which the author simon callow um writes that quote the suburbly handsome jeremy brett the regularity of his features made dramatic by a broken nose the mellifluousness of his voice made arresting by a slight vocal impediment presented a ravaged and romantic holmes a man who had suffered deeply and whose recourse to the syringe was the compulsion of a self-destroying temperament and then he goes on to invoke edward hardwick specifically but i think this is really true for both edward hardwick and david burke but he says that the relationship of Holmes to Watson is that of, quote, a drowning man clinging to a raft, which I think is really correct. Yeah. Because, like you said, you can see it in A Scandal in Bohemia. You can see it in um, The Norwood Builder. You can see it all throughout the series. Yeah. When I think about what makes the series so beloved for me, it's it's that sort of focus on that emotional connection um, without it being self-conscious or like you know like I feel in more modern television when you are trying to display two men who are really have a really close 
friendship, relationship. But, you know, it's not a romance the way you think about a romance. You People get kind of uncomfortable and have to know homo it, you know, where it's like, yeah, we we obviously like really love each other, but also like not like that. But there isn't that genuflecting here. It really is just that's the heart of this. And they're not sitting there being like, we're a little skeevy or uncomfortable about that being the focus of the story. That genuineness is really there. Yes, I think that's exactly the right word. It's it's very genuine, mm-hmm. right? And it is not self-conscious about that relationship. And I think that gets back to that quote about a scandal in Bohemia, where there is this ambiguity about their relationship that is not, this is not an intentional portrayal of a romantic relationship. And yet, it doesn't really care to define the terms of that relationship either. It is just what it is, like you said. Like, the relationship that you see is of two people who love each other, and that's just what it is. And it's very it's very warm, and it's very... There's so much depth to it, I think, which makes it so enduring. It's, uh, yeah, I, th- I think I like that it gives so much, like, depth and texture mm-hmm. to their friendship and their life. In a way where a lot of people make it one-dimensional by going, well, Watson just follows Holmes around all the time. People will make it one-dimensional in another direction going, Holmes is just mean to Watson and doesn't really respect his friendship. Moments of tension and moments of disagreement and moments Mm -hmm. where Watson's really, really worried about Holmes. And they're not on the same page about stuff, but they always, the the through line is that's because they know each other so well. And that's just like Mm -hmm. texture to the story in a way that I think is really true to how people who know each other well are. I do like where he says, really, Watson is much more my kind of part than Holmes. Holmes is a big stretch. I don't like working alone. I'm not a one-man band. So when I took on Holmes, I came to rely on Watson as much as I could without bending the willow. And there you have it. Join us next week for our narration of The Adventure of the Musgrave Ritual. You can contact us on Twitter at ImprobablePod and find more information about the show, as well as recommendations for further reading on our website, however, ImprobablePodcast.com. We would love to know your favorite Granada episodes, how you first found out about the show, your thoughts on Jeremy Brett, what else you want us to talk about, since we're going to do a whole other episode (laughs) on this show. So if you have questions or thoughts or comments, share them with us. We're on Twitter or by email is great. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're enjoying the show and can spare a moment, rate and review. It really helps people find us. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.